0: This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com/donate. You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com/qalaminstitute. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. وَعَلَىٰ وَصَحْبِهِ أَجْمَعِينَ Insha'Allah, we are continuing with our series on the prophetic biography, the seerah of the Messenger of Allah. Peace and blessings be upon him, صلى الله عليه وسلم. Um, last week, when we left off by talking about the religious condition of the Arabs, and we specifically talked about um, the Hunafah, we talked about the very, very few but scattered individuals who were present even in pre-Islamic Arabia who held on. They were the last little glimmering um, hope of tawheed within uh, pre-Islamic Arabia. And we talked about the, a few of them specifically and kind of uh, also highlighted, well, when they did finally interact with the Messenger of Allah alayhi them sallam uh, what exactly happened? Some of them found the answer that they'd been looking for. It was exactly what they'd been searching for, and some of them had developed a form of arrogance which prevented them from accepting the message of Allah, the the message that the Prophet ﷺ was presenting, was bringing from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala himself. From here on out, we're primarily for the next, maybe at the most, two sessions. We're going to be talking about the immediate family of the Prophet ﷺ. We last session at the end of the last session. We talked about the lineage of the Prophet ﷺ and where exactly he comes from in terms of his family lineage. And I read to you the entire lineage of Rasulullah ﷺ at the same time and I said, I mentioned that now we'll be focusing in on specifically getting to know more intimately knowing more details becoming more familiar with the immediate family members so for instance the grandfather the uncles especially the uncles who played a major role in his life and of course the parents of the prophet of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam any other family members that need to be spoken about will obviously be talked about as they come up within the uh, chronicling of the life of the prophet sallallahu such as his children or his spouses and um you know his milk mother, his wet nurse, etc. We'll talk about those individuals when they come up in the seerah, but we're talking about those individuals that need to be spoken about before the Prophet ﷺ, which which is obviously his grandfather, his uncles, and his parents. So the first individual we'll talk about is his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. But even in talking about his grandfather, what, what, what I'm going to do for this week's session is not talk about him so much as an individual. When was he born, how he grew up, what was his name, how long he lived. We'll talk about some of that maybe towards the end of this session or primarily next session inshallah, next week. What I'm going to talk about today are two major incidents. The, 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 the legend, if you will, of Abdul Muttalib The legend of Abdul Muttalib was solidified, was formed through through two major events. It was established and solidified through two major events which occurred during his lifetime. And he was very instrumental, he was very key, he was very important in these two major incidents that occurred. And this was pretty much what his lasting legacy was. The first incident, incident, the first situation that occurred during the life of uh, Abdul Muttalib was actually something um, which might not seem like a major incident but it, it, it played a very pivotal role uh, in the history of Makkah, especially in terms of the culture of Makkah and even Islamically. You can almost look upon it as a foretelling, as a coming sign, as a prologue to the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, and that was the revival Tajdidu Hafri Zamzam. So basically, the the re-digging up of the well of Zamzam. So very briefly there's a lot of detailed discussion but a lot of it is not very well substantiated it's not very authentic but we don't we do know this much for a fact that after of course the 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 قصة, the, the story of Ismail alayhi being a baby and his wife uh excuse me, the wife of Ibrahim his mother Hajar alayhi salam radiyallahu where when they've been left there in the valley biwadin in a valley where no vegetation grows and Ismail 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 as a baby is extremely thirsty and hungry and needing something and he's crying and the mother Hajar is running back and forth between the mountains of Safa and Marwa the act of Sa'i which has been immortalized through the sunnah and through the practice of Hajj and uh, Umrah. So she's running back and forth and Ismail as a child as a baby is sitting there crying and when he's crying and he's uh, literally kind of hitting his feet against the ground. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows uh, a spring to gush forth from the earth right where Ismail sits. And that was the well of Zamzam. Alright, so we know that story. What And and that well of Zamzam, in fact, and this is something very interesting. You know, sometimes there are certain incidents which are very spiritual, which have great religious and spiritual significance. But what we don't understand is that just like Islam is a complete lifestyle, and even spiritual routines and practices like salah and siyam and zakat have very tangible physical, emotional, psychological, economic, political implications and benefits. Alright, so it's a complete merger between the two. Alright, so similarly now that this well, this spring is gushing forth from the ground to provide water for the mother and the child, at the same time this had political, economic implications. What were the political or economic uh, implications of this spring gushing forth? Then now it became a habitable location. It became a place where people could live and survive. So immediately when you have the people of Yemen... Uh, leaving their home due to number one, the first Exodus was due to political uh, excuse me, economic hardship. All right, there was a there was a very severe famine, starvation, a drought that was going on there in Yemen. So a large segment of the population leaves Yemen looking for a place to inhabit, and when they come upon this valley that's very open, so it's like open land and it's got water, and there's already a couple of family kind of living there. So immediately it's very, very inviting. It's a great place to settle down. And then later on, when the flood comes in Yemen, and then the second exodus happens, alright, the second migration occurs of the people of Yemen, alright, then at that time again, of course, the, Mecca is a very attractive, a very appealing place to settle down. So the spring gushing forth had those types of implications where now it made the location habitable. And people could come and live there. But this is what happens next. So of course you have people settling down, you have people living there. Centuries go by, a couple of centuries go by, somewhere along the way. And and like I said, it's not very established, but there are some narrations as to the tribe of Jurhum and others, you know, nevertheless somewhere along the way someone comes and seals the well. Someone comes and seals the well. Basically the gist of the story is that there was a major civil war going on. Alright, basically the tribes and the people that had settled down there in Mecca, couple of hundred years later, they're at civil war with each other. Families and tribes are fighting with each other over control of the city of Mecca. And so one of the tribes that is in control of the well of Zamzam, what the other tribe does is they come there, they put some of their weapons down there inside as well, some gold and some things that they had for, that were extreme valuable so to safe keep them, they put those things on top of the well and they bury the well in such a way that it's not recoverable. You can't find where the well was located. And as... The years become decades, become centuries. People even completely forgot about the well existing there. And so now at the time of Abdul Muttalib, and so literally we're talking maybe just a few years before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, the people of Mecca at that time do not know that there is even a well called Zamzam. They've heard some stories, they've heard some, you know, what, what they literally consider to be fairy tales, some myths. They've heard certain myths about the fact that a well used to exist here and it had very sweet water and it was amazing and it was abundant and it would never run out but that's all it is is it's a myth nobody knows that it really exists until one day Abdul Muttalib he lays down he says I go I go home I go to my room and I lay down and I fell asleep and in my dream atani atin atani atin someone came to me And even the language that he uses to express that, he's like, I'm not sure what came to me, but something came to me. And that's why many of the scholars have not shied away from the fact of saying that maybe this was an angel. This was an angel speaking to Abdul Muttalib in his dream. This message is being communicated. So this is almost like a form of ilham. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala communicating something to a pious, righteous individual. A noteworthy individual and giving him some divine type of instruction. It's not divine revelation, don't get me wrong. It's not wahi but it's ilham it's something that is being inspired to him by Allah like it was inspired to the mother of Moses like it was inspired to Maryam the mother of Isa it's divine inspiration all right so this divine inspiration this divine message is being given to him and what is what is he being told so he says atani atin faqala ihfir tibatan go and dig up tiba, tiba, which literally means something that is very appealing very attractive so that name is being given to Zamzam that go and dig up that thing that is very appealing, very attractive. I asked him, what is Tiba? And he says, then he left. He went. He left me alone. So he says, that's all. Next day came, I went back to my home, I went back to my bed, and I laid down and I went to sleep. فجاءني, he came back to me. فقال, Go and dig up the very pious thing, Barra. That which is very pious, meaning very blessed. So go dig up the blessed well, the blessed thing. قَالَقْ I asked him, what Barra? بَرَّ? He left. فَلَمَّا كَانَ إلى فجعني. And the third day I go to sleep again, he comes back to me and he says, اِحْفِرْ المذنونة. المذنونة. Alright, go and dig up that thing that is ma'dnuna. Ma'dnuna comes from banna, banana. Alright, the root of the word literally means for something to be coveted. Something that is coveted. Meaning when somebody has it, they hide it, they hold it back, they don't share it with other people. Something that is very coveted. So go and dig up that thing which is coveted. Which is very valuable. So he says again, I ask him, Maduna, what is this thing that is coveted? he leaves again. He says, the fourth night when I went to sleep, then the angel comes back to me, or this person or this entity, this being comes back to me and he says, Ifir zamzam, go and dig up Zamzam. And so he says, I asked him, Wama Zamzam, what is Zamzam? Because remember, it's been buried for hundreds of years. I don't know what Zamzam is, I don't know what you're talking about. He said then he explains to me. He says, La tanzif abadan, wala to He says, Zamzam is that thing which will never expire, which will never run out, and its water is always abundant. It can give water to the most largest group of people that are visiting. The Hujaj. al al-dam." It is between Al-Farath and al-dam. All right. This is um, almost like an expression the Arabs used to have when something is very pure, and we see this expression is used in the Quran. You know, something very interesting is um, when Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala describes the milk of the cow. Allah says, um, "The Lebanon uh, uh, Allah says, Between the blood and the feces, between the blood and the excrement, the feces of the cow.'" You have Lebanon Khalisan. you have milk that is very pure, le Sharibin is very fulfilling to people who drink it. So we understand the scientific miracle from this, right? Science, doctors and scientists. Um, and experts of that field have told us that there is a scientific miracle that is to be observed here. This is the Quran, you know, in its miraculous nature, pointing to some uh, phenomena within biology. All right, that that's how the milk exists within the within the animal of the cow. That it's between the blood and the the feces, the excrement. At the same time, something that also needs to be highlighted is, but the Quran saying something like that would have been completely off the wall. You know, 1400 years ago when people were not familiar with this scientific fact, it would have been completely off the wall. Like it would have almost sounded like somebody had lost their mind, like they didn't know what they were talking about. And the thing about Qur'anic language is, yes, it's miraculous. Yes, it is foretelling of a scientific fact and a miracle. Miraculously, it's foretelling of a scientific fact a thousand years before people would discover this and know this. But at the same time, the Qur'an is not the talk of insane people. مَا أَنْتَ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ that's the, one of the very first things Allah told the Prophet is, when this Qur'an is revealed upon you, understand and realize and take note of the fact it's not making you crazy. Meaning it's not gonna make you sound like a crazy person. Alright. So, the, the, the real miracle of the Quran is that the fact that it's a miracle upon a miracle. That it does foretell of a scientific fact, but it does so in a way that is still comprehend, comprehensible. It is still comprehended by the people of that time. And the way it does that is it draws on, it uses figures of speech that are already present within the language. See, that's the real miracle. That it's using a figure of speech that is already Comprehensible, it's understood at that time, but within that figure of speech, it's using that specific figure of speech. Why? Because it has embedded inside of it a scientific miracle. And that's the the compound miraculous nature. So it's not just a miracle, it's compound. It's a compound miracle. You know, finance people, they talk about interest versus compound interest, right? So this is a compound miracle, is what it is. All right so this, this he's narrating he says wa hiya wa it's between the excrement or the feces and the and the blood because this is an expression used in classical arabic to say something is very very pure something is very pure so again that angel that is visiting Abdul al muttalib is saying la tanzifu abadan wa la tuzim wa hajij al a'zam wa hiya al farth wa dam 'ind al nuqrat al ghurab al a'sam 'ind qaryat an namal so then he says that you will find it look for it where you will see ant hills. Where you will find anthills. So go look for anthills. And where you find these anthills, you'll find that a lot of crows are, le- are over there and they'll be pecking their beaks into the ground. So now after he tells them that, okay, it's water that will never run out, it could feed the largest group of hujjaj, people visiting. Number three, it's extremely pure. It's great, it's beautiful, it's amazing. It's like milk in its purity. Alright? And, and also in its nourishment. But at the same time, now, where are the physical signs of where you'll find it? Go and look for hills. And wherever you see hills, look if there are crows sitting around pecking their beaks into the ground. Then that's the sign that it's right there. Alright, so what basically happens now is Abdul Muttalib goes, he takes one of his sons, Al Hadith, alright. And he finds this place. So he's able to find ant hills and he finds crows pecking their beaks there and he says, that must be the place. So he starts digging. Tells his son, come on, start digging. And they start digging and literally they start to unearth certain things. Some of the first things they come across is they come across swords made out of gold. Big old swords made out of pure gold. Completely made out of gold and silver and with jewels on them. He starts to, they keep digging and they start unearthing, again, bricks and bricks of gold and gold coins and silver coins. A lot of wealth, a lot of money. And then they keep digging and then finally realize that that's it. They're knocking on top of what is a well. Now, while this is going on, they obviously start to attract the attention of people around them. And the narrations actually say Abdul Muttalib and his son start to scream, Takbir. They started to scream, Takbir. Kabbara Abdul Muttalib. He started to scream, Takbir. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar and so now people start to congregate and realize something's going on and they see that this is it this is that buried treasure we've always heard about that 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 myth of the well is here and so now a bunch of the other leaders of the of the tribes they run up and they say that this is the well innaha abina ismail this is the well of our forefather our great 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 grandfather ismail this is his well, this is that legend we've always heard about. Wa لَنَا فِيهَا حَقًا He said, but hold up there, Abdul Muttalib, you need to slow your roll. Hold up there. If this is the well of our forefather Ismail, then all of us have a right. You don't get to dig this well up, you don't get to do this. We're all going to get together and do it. All of us have a right here. Because now all of a sudden it turns into a thing of pride, a source of pride. It's an ego thing. Who dug up the well? Who found the well? Who dug up the treasure? Who unearthed this great legend? So now everybody wants their hand in it, wants their, wants their piece of the pie. So Abdul Muttalib says, No, no, everybody back up. He says, Ma bi fa'il. He says, No, no, no. It's not that easy. I'm not going to give in that easy. He says that this was informed to me directly. I was, in, I, was, I was shown where this well was, I was inspired, I was shown in my dream. So this was inspired to me directly. This is my responsibility and I'm going to take care of this. And I'm not backing down from this. Abdul Muttalib was a very wise man. As as we'll learn later on, um, he's, he's a very generous man, he's a very kind man, he was a great leader. But at the same time, he's holding firm to his ground on this issue and he said, no, no, I was divinely inspired where this was and I'm the one who's going to dig it up and this is my task. This has been given to me. It's not that easy. I'm not backing off of this they continue to fight and argue finally they come to the terms they say okay fine there's a very very old wise man some of the narrations say he was actually a kahin he was a soothsayer nevertheless regardless there's this one person over there and he's the one who will decide he, he's going to mediate between us he's going to make the decision as to what we do Abdul Muttalib says fine whatever, whatever works for you alright so they set out to go to this person who lives very far away they're traveling now SubhanAllah, some of the narrations actually talk about now that they set out on this journey, what ends up happening on this journey is that he lives very very far away and along the way they start to become very thirsty. And they can't find any water. They run out of all their supplies that they had taken with them. And they're now in the middle of the desert. They're in the middle of nowhere. There's no one around them. There's no water around them. There's no people. They don't see any travelers, any caravans. And they're continuing to go. And all of a sudden, people start to pass out and fall down. And people are starting to fall ill. And now, they're in a crisis situation. Alright? So now people are literally dying of thirst. So what do they do? They start to say that all right, everybody. Let's not leave this burden on some other people. All right, they don't see any help in sight. They don't see any water in sight. So now they come up. It was part of the. It was almost part of a, a, a tradition, if you will. It was a practice at that time that when a caravan was traveling and they'd be facing death because of it. I mean, they live in the middle of the desert, so it's not the first time this is happening. All right, it's like running out of like getting a flat tire on the freeway. It's not the first time it happened. All right, so. As shocking as it seems, this was a very common predicament. Because you're traveling out in the middle of the desert, there's a good chance that you're gonna run out of supplies and die from thirst or starvation. It was a very common thing that would happen. So the thing that you were supposed to do at that time, is that what the caravans people would do, as they started to get weak, and they realized that they would not be able to go on, or they didn't have too much longer, they would dig their own grave. They would dig their own grave. Because you didn't want to put that... Burden on someone else. So they would dig their own grave and then they would basically when they would lose all their energy or they would start to pass out, they would go and lay down inside of that grave themselves. Because they also didn't want to die and they have their body left behind and then the animals like pick at them and eat them. So what they would do is they would dig their own grave, they lay down inside of their own grave and wait for death to come to them. This was a practice that they would do if they got stuck in a situation like this. So now everybody starts digging their own grave and the narration actually mentions they started to lay down inside of their graves. And now some of them are starting to pass out, some of them are fading in and out of consciousness. What ends up happening is, Abdul Muttalib passes out for a little while, he wakes up and he tells them, everybody get up, get up, get up. We can't give up that easy. I just have this gut feeling that we're, we're very close. Water not too far away, we'll find some water. So now he rallies everybody up together, he motivates them. They all get up out of these graves that they dug for themselves. And they start moving forward at whatever pace they can, as difficult as it is, they move forward. Abdul Nuttalib goes forward until he finally reaches a place and he stops his animal there. And he kind of kicks his animal and his animal raises up its front legs and hits its feet on the ground. And literally a spring shoots up out of the ground, right there and then. And so they start digging at it, they start digging there. And they unearth this amazing well. And it saves all of their lives. Alright? Now obviously these people, when this happens, they were going there because they had a fight with Abdul Muttalib and he just ends up saving their lives. So they end up telling him, they say, no, no, no. The one that showed you Alright, the words of the narration go that the one that showed you where this well was must have been the one that showed you where that well was, the well of Zamzam. Alright, the one that showed you where this water is must have been the one who showed you where the ma' of Zamzam, the water of Zamzam was. Alright, therefore we have no argument, we got no beef, no questions asked. You dig up the well, you're the custodian of the well, you're responsible for the well, we're sorry we ever argued with you. We're sorry we ever doubted you. And they go back to Mecca, and Abdul Muttalib, along with his sons, um, he digs up the well, and you know solidifies the well, and that's basically how the well of Zamzam was established. Now. So that's how the well of Zamzam was established and from there on it was kept and it was a source of pride for them and it's what they would use. Um, It's even mentioned that when Abdul Muttalif finally did solidify you know he built the wall around the well and he was able to establish the well he recited a few couplets of poetry and Abdul al muttalib was a very very eloquent man his poetry is quoted on many many different occasion incidents he said allahumma antal malikul mahmud rabbi fa anta al mubdi' al mu'id wa mumsik raisat al julud min 'indika at-ta'rif wa talid in shi'ta alhamt kama tureed li al hilyati wal hadid fabayyin il yawma lima tureed inni nadartu laahi إِجْعَلْهُ فَلَا أَعُودُ The gist of what he says is that, Oh Allah, you are the king and you are the one worthy of praise. My Lord, my master, you are the one who originally creates and you're the one who brings back. You are the one who holds, gives strength and steadfastness. And from you comes wealth and from you comes the opposite of wealth, which is starvation or poverty. So you're the one that, that solidifies and strengthens and only from you comes wealth and poverty. If you wish, you inspire as you will, meaning you give direction to whomsoever you want, whenever you want. To give that person the understanding or the knowledge of where treasure or where wealth is buried. So today, explain to me, show me what you want me to do. Because I have made an oath and a promise that I will do as I have promised to you and I will do as you have instructed to me. So my Lord, tell me what it is that you want me to do and I will not return back until I have completed your task. So after he dug up the well of Zamzam and he built the wall around it and he... Got it ready. Basically, it was open for it was ready for the grand opening. He recited this poetry. Basically, made this du'a there at the well. That oh Allah, I dug up this well because You showed me where it was, and oh Allah, You're the only one who can give this type of instruction. So now, Allah, tell me what it is that You want me to do. What role do You want this well to play? What purpose have You instructed me to dig up this well for? What is the purpose of it? So he recited these couplets. He basically made this du'a, and that's why I said that in the previous session. That's why I mentioned that some of the scholars list Abdul Muttalib in the list of the people who, are hunafa, who were Hunafah, um, who were monotheists, who were people who were still worshipping one Allah, one God, it's because of narratives like this. Because it's very obvious from the way Abdul Muttalib would speak, the way he conducted himself, the what he believed in, that it becomes very obvious that he was somebody who held firmly on to this belief that there is one Allah. I also I told you when he dug up the well, he found those golden swords and all that gold and silver. What did he do with all of that? The narration tells us that he basically melted all of that down and he built a door for the Kaaba out of all of that gold and silver that he was able to unearth. He melted all of it down and he was able to, he, he constructed, he built a door out of that and basically put that as the door of the Kaaba. So he's also one of the f- first people to adorn the Kaaba in such an elaborate, such an extravagant fashion. But again, it's not something that's reprehensible. It's something that's recommended or something that's admirable. Why? Because he's doing this out of love. He's doing this out of affection and he's doing this out of respect of this being that sacred sanctuary, this first house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is built on the face of this earth And then of course, so now talking about the well of Zamzam, that's the history of the well of Zamzam. And this is the first key incident, one of the first main legacies that Abdul Muttalib left behind. That he was the one who unearthed, who dug up the well of Zamzam after I had been lost, I had been buried so long that I was literally lost from the people. Now, why is this of significance? Why mention this? Why talk about this? Two things. Number one, for the obvious reasons. We know Zamzam and we know the role that it plays. We know what were the origins of the well of Zamzam, that it happened through a miraculous, Um, Incident And it was something that was a command of Allah And this was the family of the Yambiyah, The family of the Prophet Ismail Who was a messenger and a prophet of Allah As a child himself That was how this spring shot forth And that's how this well first came into into existence Was through some very religiously significant um, Incidents At the same time, we know that even till today, in our tradition, the tradition of Islam, the tradition that the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah ﷺ taught to us, in that tradition, the well of Zamzam is still something that has great religious and spiritual significance and value. It is literally part, it is from the ritual and the practice of performing Umrah and Hajj. It's not from the fara'id, but it is from the sunan, from the mustahabbat from the recommended practices of when you perform Umrah and when you perform Hajj, to go there and to drink Zamzam is part of the ritual of Hajj and Umrah. Alright, so it's an act of worship. At the same time, the Messenger of Allah through multiple narrations, he tells us, مَا Zamzam لِمَا Shuribalah that the water of Zamzam serves whatever purpose it is drank for. Meaning whatever intention or whatever purpose you have in mind, whatever intention you have in mind or in your heart when you drink the water of Zamzam, it serves that purpose. Meaning it will bring to fruition that intention that you have. Meaning that if you drink the water of Zamzam with this intention, as almost what we would consider like what we call a dua. You you make this dua or you have this intention that oh Allah I'm drinking this water of Zamzam so that I'm cured from something. All right. Then, Zamzam will serve that purpose. The Prophet ﷺ tells us this in narration hadith. Not only that, but a very beautiful, very interesting hadith that the Prophet ﷺ says. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ says, in a narration narrated by Ibn Abbas رضي الله عنه. First Ibn Abbas is telling a person, Ida Sharibta min zamzam, Ibn Abbas is teaching somebody the etiquettes of drinking Zamzam. He says when you drink Zamzam, then face the Kaaba, meaning face towards the Qibla. khibla. ism Allah. Alright, and say the name of Allah. <clears throat> thalathan and drink it in three steps sips, meaning take three breaths in between while drinking the zam- uh, Zamzam. So Zamzam is not something you chug. Alright, Sometimes some did not something you chug, rather you drink it with a certain amount of um, etiquette. minha. And then the last and the final step is, he says, and drink it to your fill. So take breaths in between while you drink it, but make sure you drink it abundantly, drink it to your fill. فرغت And when you're done, then thank Allah. Say alhamdulillah. So Ibn Abbas is teaching somebody this etiquette of drinking Zamzam, and then at the end of it, he says, Inna sallallahu Why? Because the Messenger of Allah sallallahu has said, Inna aya'ta ma bi'ena wa bi'na almunafiqeen la He says because one of the signs. One of the distinct signs of the difference between us and the munafiqoon, the hypocrites, is that they do not drink the water of Zamzam to their fill. So something very interesting, that's really deep what the Prophet is saying. He's saying that a sign, a clear distinction between us... Meaning the believers and the munafiqoon, the hypocrites, and realize if you ever do go to the haram and you see somebody sipping zamzam, alright, don't be like, oh, I know who you is, right? That, that's, that's not what that means. Like, ah, oh, gotcha, right? So that's not what that means. But what it means is on a spiritual level, it's for self-reflection. That if somebody is a true believer, if somebody is a true believer, it's basically telling you what is the difference between belief and hypocrisy, that one of the key differences be between belief and hypocrisy is skepticism. Conviction versus skepticism. So replace the word iman and nifaq with conviction and skepticism. Iman is conviction. Belief is conviction. A believer is somebody who's convinced. So when the Messenger of Allah says that the water of Zamzam benefits you, the water of Zamzam benefits you. It will get. It will fulfill whatever intention you have. <coughs> then the believer is convinced of this, he knows this. He knows that if I drink the water of Zamzam, and I have certain needs, I will drink it with those needs in mind, and I will pray to Allah for those needs, Allah will fulfill my needs. So what's a believer going to do? He's gonna drink Zamzam till he's blue in the face. Right? So if a believer, if somebody truly believes, and the Prophet of Allah is saying, hey, you want your prayers answered? This is what you gotta do. What's a believer gonna do? He's gonna get on that. He's gonna get serious about it. He's gonna exhaust that opportunity. When someone believes that my dua is being accepted at the time of iftar, then while everybody else is doing the countdown, three, two, one, when everyone's doing the countdown, what is a believer doing? He forgets the fact. He doesn't even realize that the fast has been opened. Why? Because he's busy making du'a. Because I need these prayers answered. That's what a believer is like. So a believer will drink zamzam until he's blue in the face, and he'll be making du'a and making intention and drinking zamzam. But if somebody has nifaq, that means that person is skeptical. He's a skeptic. So he's gonna say, Oh yeah, zamzam is kind of cool, but you know, yeah, alhamdulillah, mashaAllah. Right? He's, not gonna really, he's not gonna be enthusiastic about it. He's not gonna be um, excited about the opportunity. So that's the Prophet of Allah giving us a, tel- a tool of self-evaluation. That when you go there, when you're standing there and you're drinking Zamzam, just evaluate your behavior and it'll let you know whether you, you got some room for improvement or not. Alright so these these are just a few things um Abdul Muttalib said something very interesting wa qad dhukira an Abdul Muttalib annahu qala is narrated by Imam Al bayhaqi fi dalail fi dala'il a very famous book of uh, hadith prophetic traditions that Imam Al bayhaqi has compiled he said that Abdul Muttalib said Allahumma inni la uhilluha li mukhtasilin wa hiya li sharibin hillun wa He says that, oh Allah, I do not deem this, meaning I do not allow someone to use this for washing themselves. Meaning that even Abdul Muttalib had this understanding that this water of Zamzam is sacred, it's pure, it has some religious significance, has some spiritual value to it. So he did not like people using it for like washing their car. You know, like he didn't think it was appropriate for somebody to go and wash their camel with Zamzam water. It's not like like a water hose you just turn on in your front lawn and you water your lawn or you wash your car with it. He didn't think that was appropriate. He says, rather for the one who wants to drink it, it's okay. I allow someone to drink this water and it is a cure or it is something that benefits the person when they drink it. So obviously even before the prophetic tradition, it was seen to have some type of religious significant value to it. And then just a little bit about the continuing history about the well of Zamzam. So they stayed under the auspices, they stayed under the supervision of Abdul Muttalib, all right, the Banu Hashim, Abdul Muttalib specifically, it stayed underneath his supervision until he passed and then it was passed on to Abu Talib. His son, Abdul Muttalib's son, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Talib, became the caretaker, became the supervisor of the well of Zamzam. And here's something really remarkable. You know when you always hear about the people of Quraysh, the people of Makkah, were the were used to give Sahiul hujjaj they used to give water to the people who would visit for the pilgrimage. And you think like, Oh, okay, that's kinda nice. Like when people come to do Hajj, they would just kinda like you know, serve them water. Sometimes, you know, even a, sometimes we see leaders in our times do those types of things where it's, you know, when you have a groundbreaking and the mayor shows up and just kind of takes a shovel and just kind of poses with it and just takes like one shovel and hands it to his assistant and then walks off, right? We're done with the press release, right? So you get that kind of image in your head like, okay, the leaders of the Quraysh would serve water to the Quraysh. They would probably show up for the first ceremonial cup like, here you go. And then call the slaves, come on, get this done. Wait, wait, I'm not gonna serve water to people, right? No, no, no. This was something that was they took very seriously. They took it seriously. They would literally physically do themselves. And not just that, it wasn't just a physical endeavor, a physical investment of time or energy. It was also a financial investment. So serving water to the hujjaj meant that they would have to set up tents. They would have to arrange for cups. They would have to arrange for workers if that's what was needed. And they had to like make arrangements for serving water. They would have to buy, they would have to pay for the containers that the hujjaj could fill up water and take the water in as well. So it was a huge physical, uh, financial investment for the one who wanted to do it too. So the first year that Abu Talib inherited the leadership or the supervision of the well of Zamzam, he he literally went bankrupt. He went bankrupt. uh, One thing about Abu Talib that we're gonna learn later on is, Abu Talib was an amazing man. And he was a leader of his people. He wasn't a wealthy man. And that was number one, you know, obviously that just was not his lot. He just wasn't destined to be a wealthy man, but personality-wise too, he had certain things in his personality where it just—he was very averse to even, you know, making a lot of money. It just wasn't a part of his personality; it wasn't who he was. And so he wasn't a wealthy man at all. In fact, he was somewhat, um, you know, he used to struggle financially. In fact, so the first year inherited this, the leadership, the supervision of this well, he went broke, he went bankrupt. So when the next year came around, he goes to his brother Abbas. And he says to Abbas, I need you to loan me some money. I need you to loan me some money because I have to arrange for the for the siqayat al hujjaj I have to arrange for serving the water to the visiting pilgrims. And I, I'm broke, I don't have any money. So Abbas, his brother, gives him 10,000 dirhams, 10,000 silver coins, darahim. Alright, he gives him 10,000 silver coins and he says, here you go, here's a loan. And and, uh, Abu Talib is like, look, this is a blessed act and I'm confident that blessing will come to me and I'll be blessed and I will pay you back in full. Don't worry brother, I'll pay you back. So he gives him this money, he makes all the arrangements for the hujjaj, you know, spends all the money and he's broke again. When the following year comes and he still doesn't have money, he goes back to his brother and he says, I'm still broke. So Abbas says, okay, we're gonna have to work out a deal. You said you would pay me back and now you're asking for more money. So you obviously can't not pay me back. So any more money I, I give you, I have to assume you're not gonna be paying me back. So we're gonna turn this not into a loan, but we're gonna turn this into a transaction. You're basically, I will take you out of your debt, I'll take care of your debts, alright? But what you're going to do is, you're going to sell me the rights to the well of Zamzam. Alright? So he says, you're going to sell me the because this is a great honor, a great prestige. So you're going to sell me the rights to the well of Zamzam. And that's basically how they worked it out. And eventually it's mentioned that this passed on to Abbas, and he passed it on to his son so Abbas radiyallahu, of course, we know, accepted Islam and lived even beyond the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. When Abbas radiyallahu finally did pass away, this was then passed on to his son Abdullah, Abdullah bin Abbas radiyallahu He was given that that position of the leadership, the supervision of the well of Zamzam. This later on passed to Ali, the son of Abdullah bin Abbas. So Abdullah bin Abbas named one of his sons Ali, that then passed on to his son. Uh, Daud bin Ali which then passed on to his son Suleiman bin Ali which eventually passed on to his son Isa bin Ali and that eventually was then inherited by his brother who was Al-Mansur alright the Khalifa the king who came later on, al-Mansur, Khalifa al-Mansur, alright, it passed on to eventually to him, and from there, um, it passed on between the leadership, so much so. So it wasn't so much a thing that went on in the family, it was then passed on amongst the Umayyad, Dynasty, the Umayyad kings, they would pass this type of, disposition on amongst themselves. So that's a real brief recount in a history of the Well of Zamzam. So that's the first significant event I wanted to talk about that occurs that is part of the legacy of Abdul Muttalib. The next thing I wanted to talk about is the very obvious historical great historical incident, and that is the invasion of the army of the elephants. Alright? Amul Fil, the year of the elephant. Alright, this is a very, very important incident. Alright, I'm going to go ahead and tell you something that probably should be mentioned at the end of the narrating of this incident and this story, but I'll tell you here on the front end, and that is the Prophet of Allah was born in the same year as the invasion by the army of the elephants. Alright, he was born in that same year. In fact, the most substantial of historical accounts say that the Prophet of Allah was literally born two months. He was born two months, 55 days, 57 days, to 60 days. Somewhere there are all these different narrations. He was born two months after the invasion by this army. So he was born immediately after this incident occurred. Uh, I was telling you one thing about the well of Zamzam, I don't want to forget that. I told you number one, why is it significant? Because of the religious significance of the well. The second thing is the scholars actually extra, extrapolate, they extract one very profound understanding from this unearthing of the well of Zamzam a few years before the birth of the Prophet Wasallam by none other than the grandfather of the Prophet Wasallam, And that was, this was one of the foretelling signs of the coming of the Prophet Wasallam. That just like this great blessing and by the way, the well of Zamzam, how did it first come into existence? Through the family of Ibrahim a.s. So this is one of those things that is from the legacy of Ibrahim salam, correct or not? The family of Ibrahim, it's from the legacy of Ibrahim, the well of Zamzam. All right. And so as a sign of the unearthing, the the, the revival of the true and real legacy of Ibrahim a.s. which was the worship of one Allah alone. Tawheed, which is the true actual legacy of Ibrahim a.s. which is Tawheed, as a sign that the revival of the true legacy of Ibrahim, the actual legacy of Ibrahim, Tawheed, that Tawheed is about to be revived, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala arranged for one of the, very, one of the smaller, one of the minor legacies of Ibrahim a.s. and that was the well of Zamzam for that to be on earth. By none other than the grandfather of the Prophet t.s. who was the man? who not only took care of, but the man who named Muhammad Wasallam. So there's a very direct correlation here. Right? So this is almost like the foretelling of the signs of the birth of the Prophet that this, the Prophet of the last times is about to be born. He's about to um, be present on the face of this earth. Alright? So that was one thing I wanted to mention before I went forward. So now talking about the invasion by the army of the elephants. The first thing that you have to understand is that we talked about this a few sessions ago, that was a political landscape at the time of the birth of the Prophet And We talked about this. And one of the things I mentioned was Yemen was a place that had a great amount of turbulence. Yemen was a place that was originally idol worshipping. It was idolatrous originally. Alright. Then what happened was that the, it became very heavily Christian influenced because they were neighbors with Eastern Africa, Abyssinia. The Christianity had a huge impact there and basically the people became Christian. What happened in between there was that there was a Jewish overtaking of Yemen, of that, that place and those people, and many of the historians have the opinion that the Ashab al that incident that is mentioned in Surah al buruj where people were persecuted, and we don't know, we do know whether that, what happened there is what the Quran is referencing or not, that's a secondary point. We do know for a fact that when the, when, when, uh, the, when, there was a Jewish overtaking of, of the area of Yemen, the kingdom of Yemen. The the majority Christian people were persecuted during that time. They were persecuted at that time and they were very severely persecuted. What that did was that the Christian empire, the Christian kingdom that was present in Abyssinia in Eastern Africa, they were severely offended by this. And then the, the Abyssinian king, the Christian Abyssinian king sent an army back into Yemen, not for the purpose of conquering it. This is a, this is a real big misunderstanding that occurs. That when the Christian Abyssinian king sent an army into Yemen, his primary purpose was not to extend his kingdom. He could care less. His purpose was to free the people from tyranny and oppression that was going on at that time. And once power was recaptured, it was then given back to the Christians at that time. So this is where you have a little bit of a difference in historical narrative. Many people say that the Abraha, the man who launched the attack against the Kaaba, what he did was he fought and he defeated and freed Yemen from the rulership of Abyssinia. Not completely historically accurate. Rather, the, the the kingdom of Abyssinia never wanted Yemen to literally be another state. They just wanted the Christian majority to be able to rule themselves. And there was an affiliation back to the Abyssinian Christian kingdom. Why? Because that was where they drew their support from. But they were nevertheless meant to be an independent rulership of their own. What, what, what did happen was that when the Christian overtaking occurred, when the Christians won their freedom back from the Jews, at that time, the king, his name was Irba, uh, the ruler, the, the, the general, all right, the governor or the king you could even call him. The ruler's name was Irbat. Abraha was a, a, was a general in his army who was not satisfied with the way Irbat was ruling things because Irbat was mainly somebody who was first and foremost a Christian and he was a, a ruler secondly. What I mean by that is that he wasn't really a powerful ruler. He had no—he didn't have a lot of—he didn't have a great understanding of economics and political, um, you know, advancement and political stabilization. He wasn't a ruler. He was not a governor. He had no expertise in the area, but he was a deeply spiritually profa- like deeply uh, spiritual Christian. He was a very, very devout Christian. And that's why he was kind of put into that position to rule over the people, was because his whole uh, uprising was seen as a spiritual religious uprising. Abraha who was a strategist, a political military strategist, he was not satisfied with the way Irbat was running things. So what he did was he led a coup against Irbat. he actually ended up killing this king Irbat, and he overtook uh, the, the, the rulership. Now, Abraha... Said, we have to regain our glory. We have to go back to the old days of the glory. Because remember, I talked about there was financial hardship, there was a drought, there was a famine for a very long time, and then the flood had come, and it had led that, it had left that entire region ravaged completely. Alright, and anyone who was, everyone who was anyone had gone to Hijaz, who had gone to Mecca, and even Yathrib and these other places. Os and Khazraj were Yemeni originally. Alright, so they had gone there and they had settled there, and business was flourishing. Mecca had become the epicenter, had become the metropolitan area. It was in New York City, all business was coming in and out of there. Alright, so he said that we have to regain control, we have to regain our glory. And so, in regaining the glory, and I want to clarify this. And this, I mean, I want you to listen very carefully.
1: Abraha wasn't
0: a good man by any, by any, you know, by any means at all. You know, he came, he killed his own ruler and overtook control. And a couple of more things I'll tell you, and you obviously know the man who attacked the Kaaba couldn't be that great of a guy, anyways, right? It wasn't somebody you'd want to hang out with, anyways. But at the same time, I do want you to understand one thing, though. And this is very important because it teaches us a lesson, some a very profound lesson. Abrahah from the very beginning wasn't didn't have his eyes set on destroying the Kaaba. That was not his first plan of action. That was not his first course of action. His plan A was not, let's go destroy the Kaaba. That was not plan A for this man. In fact, we even find historical announcements, Ibn Kathir, in Al-Bida'i even mentioned certain things that historical accounts tell us that Abraha was actually a very patient. And he was a very thoughtful person, he was a genius, he was a very extremely intelligent man. And he, he was known for his patience with people. He was known for his patience with people. He would listen to people, he would talk to people. And we even see that when he's coming to attack the Kaaba, every single time he comes across you know, some of the Arab tribes, he would literally sit down, he would have counsel, he would talk to the leaders, he would hear them out. Abdul Muttalib and him had a very fascinating conversation. If he was this bloodthirsty, crazy, maniacal, diabolical, you know, person, ruler, who's bloodthirsty, when Abdul Muttalib showed up, he wouldn't listen to Abdul Muttalib, he'd be like, I'm gonna start with you. Who do you think you are to come and talk to me? I'll start with you. He'd be crazy, he'd be power hungry, bloodthirsty, but he wasn't like that. So Abraham's plan A was not let's go to the let's go to Mecca and destroy the Kaaba. That wasn't plan A for him. Plan A for him was all right. We still live in a place. Realize, understand. I've talked a lot about this. So I'm not going to rehash that discussion. Spiritually, you know, people were very, very corrupt. Unfortunately, you know, the Christianity had been corrupted, Judaism had been corrupted, and the, the the Arab were worshiping idols at this time. But it did not change the fact that I talked about this. That don't call it religion or spirituality if you don't want to. Call it superstition, but nevertheless, their superstition played a major role in their decision making process. Whether that decision was, um, and I talked about this, that, you know, what's significant about the Arabs is I told you that they used to alter the calendar. There were sacred months. So when the sacred month would come, rather than cease fighting, they wouldn't cease the fighting, so they weren't devout to that extent. They weren't disciplined. But at the same time, they didn't say, who cares about sacred months? Sacred months, sacred months, who gives a crap? Like, let's just do what we have to do. They, at the same time, they didn't do that either. There was this weird, you know, very perverted adherence to their superstitions or their beliefs, where they would say, look, sacred months are still sacred months. But what we're gonna do is, we're gonna figure this out, we're gonna learn to work around it. So we're gonna delay the beginning of the sacred month to the next month and we're gonna forward that month over to this month and then we'll work it back out later. You know, as, as, as ridiculous as that seems and the Quran completely condemns that practice, in the manasi ziyadatun fil kufr. The Quran says this was a form of kufr. It nevertheless, if you read into it psychologically, emotionally, you see only that person would still try to try to work around it who still thought that there was some significance to it. Otherwise you have complete, you know, um, uh, a form of like agnosticism, where it's like, "Eh, whatever, who cares. There wasn't complete apathy, but it was a lack of respect, or a lack of seriousness about it. All right, a lack of grounding in tradition. And so similarly, Abraha is a strategist, this is a political military genius, he looks at his people, looks at the people and he realizes, alright, here's the problem. If I want my people, my land, my country to regain its glory, that's going to become. That's going to first begin with attracting business. And we got to bring the money back here. All right, we got to get. We got to. We got to turn this into a hotspot again. All right, we got to make We got to make people want to come here. How are we going to do that? Well, people are still very religious quote-unquote meaning like superstitious or whatever you want to call it, alright, they're religious or spiritual in their own way, shape or form, in their own fashion, they're still very adherent to whatever belief system they have. So what I have to do is, I have to create an attraction like they had in Mecca that brought people over there. So I got to create a similar attraction. So remember, he's Christian, so he bring, he builds a church. But he build, doesn't build a church, he builds a palace of a church. Alright, Kanisa Avimah, he brings. he builds a huge, glamorous, unbelievable church. All right, by the name of Pulais. He names it Kules, and he builds this huge church that is, you know, has every single resource that they had available, he poured it into it. All their money, all their gold, all their silver, all their jewels were encrusted into it. Every single thing he had, he poured into it. Not only that, but he put his people into the labor of building that church. And it even talks about, And like I said, I'm not here trying to say that Abraha was a great guy because he wasn't. All right. It mentions that he forced his people to build the church like manual labor, so much so, that if somebody did not jo- show up to the job site, to the construction site, until the sun would rise, so basically work would start when the sun would rise. And you had better show up before the sun would rise. If somebody showed up to work, to, to the job site, to the construction site, after, the, after sunrise, he would cut that person's hand off. That was a punishment for showing up late to work. So he wasn't a really compassionate fellow, all right? He wasn't a real nice guy, all right? But nevertheless, what I want you to understand is plan A for him was not to go destruct, destroy the Kaaba. His plan A was, let's build a place that rivals the Kaaba. that becomes competition for the Ka'aba. That makes people think twice. Do I want to go there? or do I want to come here? Let's at least start there. That was his plan A. All right? And yes, spiritually, of course, we're, you know we see what's wrong with that because we hold on to the Islamic tradition and the Kaaba is some place that is very sacred to us. But if you take yourself outside of that mindset, you understand from his perspective, he's not doing something really, really bad yet. He's just offering an incentive to his own people. Alright, so that's what he did. So he has this amazing place built. And then after he has this amazing place built, he then sends a message to the king alright, that is in Abyssinia, the Christian Abyssinian king who was Najashi at the time, alright, he sent, who later on accepted Islam, he, he sends a message, sends a letter to him and says what? And the reason why, because remember they're still affiliated, he still relies on him for a lot of support and he says that, I have built a, a church and I've dedicated this church to you. Like he says, I've built a church that is dedicated to you. You're more than welcome to come and grace this church with your presence and do the grand opening of this church. all right? And I want to bring honor and dignity back to our people who are our Christian people. So obviously he understands what the king, speaks the king's language. So I want to bring honor and dignity back to this Christian land and our Christian people. And so that's why I built this church. And this is what he says next. He says, at the end of the letter, he says, and I will not rest. This The construction of this church is not done in my mind. Even though physically it might be done, the doors might be open. my mission, my job is not done until I am able to bring more people here than, than, the, than the amount of people, than the number of people that go and visit the Kaaba in Mecca. This is what he ends with. He says, that's my goal. I wanna beat them. I wanna have more people come here than the, people, the amount of people that go there. So that's where, what he ends with. The problem with that is, words of this friend's, Words of this spreads over to the Arabs. The Arabs find out about this. When the Arabs find out about this, you can imagine they're not very happy. Alright? So a man from Banu Kanana, a Kanani, a man from Banu Kanana, that's all that's mentioned, his name is not given to us. He goes there to Yemen, he goes to the Qulays, he goes to this unbelievable, beautiful, fabulous, mind-blowing church. He hangs around there until like closing hours are there kind of hide somewhere you know you kind of hide behind a corner hide inside of a room inside the bathroom inside the stall he hides somewhere so that they close up and everybody leaves once it closes up once it's closed up and everybody leaves he comes out and he leaves a gift and a present for everybody all right that's code for he basically defecates there in the church he goes to the bathroom in the church all right don't laugh That's immature. So he leaves a gift for… He goes to the bathroom and he leaves a gift there for everybody in the church. And one narration even mentions, Ibn Kathir, rahmahullah, actually mentions his narration. He says he actually takes it and he smears it all over the walls. So this is a very classy guy to summarize. Alright? So, it's a classy individual. So he goes there and he does this. Um, Obviously, everybody shows up in the morning, everyone's appalled. You know, this is Abraha, he might be the ruler of the land, so you might think, you know, something like this isn't brought to his attention, but this is his personal project. This is his thing. This is his legacy. He finds out about this, and his blood is boiling at this point. Alright, his blood is boiling. And and this, this classy individual obviously goes and he brags to a bunch of people about what he's done, and so they're more than willing to take credit of it, like, yeah, take that. Take that son, you're going to talk about you know overtaking our Kaaba, you know, beating our Kaaba. what about now? And Abraha is furious, he's livid. he immediately sends out the word. he actually takes an oath, standing there looking at all this mess there inside of the church, he stands there and he takes an oath, he swears by God, I will not rest until I have destroyed the Kaaba. I will destroy the Kaaba." He rallies up support, rallies all the troops together. There's a difference of narration. Before I continue, what time is Salat al Isha? 845. 845. 8.45, okay, so we have... 8.45? Yeah. Okay, so we have a few more minutes, inshallah. So he rallies up support, gathers all the troops together, gathers together in some narrations, the highest of narrations actually says, he gathers 60,000 troops together. 60,000 troops. He's pretty mad, alright? He's not happy. So he gathers 60,000 troops together and marches out towards Mecca. He does one last thing, one very interesting thing. Remember, Yemen has that connection back to Abyssinia to Africa, all right? So one last thing that he does, though, is that he recruits. He actually hires a man by the name of Unais. All right? This man is like an elephant breeder or an elephant herder he's like the elephant whisperer all right so he gets he recruits this guy and says i want you to get from me about a dozen elephants different narrations anywhere between nine and fifteen the uh, some of the more established narrations in the books of seer they talk about that he had about twelve a dozen elephants recruits (laughs) this elephant herder elephant breeder guy who has a dozen elephants and he says i really want to make a statement I want to strike fear into the hearts of these people. So he he mainly does it symbolically. I mean obviously we understand that militarily how it's very strategic. Obviously you have elephants, you have tanks. You can literally trample a place, you can raise it to the ground. It's like bulldozers, you can just raise it to the ground. Aside from the military strategy standpoint, it's also very… Strategic, in a uh, uh, militarily, in the sense of it's very symbolic, and he also knows these people. He knows that the Arabs, the majority of them, have never seen an elephant in their life. All right, it's it's like looking at an alien. They've never seen an elephant in their entire life. It's only something that they like mothers tell to kids when they want they want to scare them and put them to sleep. And there's a big scary animal. There's a big scary beast called a field. All right, nobody's ever seen it in real life. They've never seen anything like it. It's this largest creation of Allah that walks the earth. So if I show up with these elephants, it doesn't matter. I could have sixty thousand troops or six thousand troops. It doesn't matter. I many troops. If I walk into town with a dozen elephants, these people will run so fast for the hills they won't know what hit them. I mean, I just walked in with like a like a dozen jinns, like a dozen a dozen like beasts. It's scary. So he he recruits this elephant breeder guy. And tells him to bring his dozen elephants. And they set out, they start marching. Now, this is the... So the first lesson I wanted to talk about, and I might go ahead and stop there because then there's a very interesting um, second part of this story. We all know that the main part of the story is when, you know, of course the birds come and, and the army is obliterated. We'll get there. But... There's something actually before that which is historically it's very... You know from the Qur'anic narrative, that part of the story is the main part of the story. Alright? Arsal ababil, Right? That's the main part of the story from the Qur'anic perspective. But when you look at it from a historical perspective, the part right before that, from the seerah perspective, the part before that is the key part. You know, some of, the, some of the advances or some of the obstacles along the way that Abraha's army faced and eventually, the conversation between Abdul Muttalib and Abraha is the key part of the story from a Sira perspective. And so we'll talk about that inshallah when we get there. But, and because I want to be able to talk about that, discuss that thoroughly, we'll go ahead and stop here, and I'll end on this one point. You know, Abraha is this guy, he's obviously, he's, he's a powerful man, he's a very driven and motivated individual. And he kind of has his back up against the wall. Alright, he's, he's presented himself to be this revolutionary leader. He's overthrown the previous leader. Alright, and he's taken control of the power and made a lot of promises to his people. Alright, so his back up is against the wall. But he's a very smart, very intelligent, very confident guy. And he's made a lot of big promises. So he's very motivated, very driven to live up to his word. And he's also inspired, he's confident. He's like, I can get this done, I gotta get this done. Alright? Now, so he sets out to accomplish what he wants to do. And he builds his church and he's like, you know, we gotta start attracting a little bit of traffic this way and start bringing people through here. So, so he builds this church. Now, what ends up happening is that, and, and notice this, The legacy of Abraha, how we know Abraha, how he's been immortalized, is that he was the poor foolish individual who decided to launch an attack against Baytullah, against Kaaba. That's how he's forever been preserved in history, as that guy. That guy who was dumb enough to try that. Alright? But I want you to understand one thing. That's why I highlighted that part of the story. That's not how Abraha started out. He wasn't malicious to begin with. Yeah, he was very competitive, he was very driven, he was very motivated. And from Based on this, the, the scene that was there at that time, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. Okay, fine, he builds himself a beautiful church. So what? To each his own. Alright, let the best man win. That's fine. When did he become angry? When did he become malicious? And by the way, we tell that glorious part of the end of the story. We're like, you know that great miracle occurs, Allah sends these birds with the pebbles and boom, they completely tear this army to shreds. But again, that middle part of the story that I'm gonna be telling you next week, is the part of the story where thousands, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people died. Hundreds if not thousands of Arabs, died, they died. Because there were, there were some tribes along the way who decided to fight Abraham. And there were some towns along the way who decided to stand against him because Kaaba was sacred to all these Arabs. They stood against him. And he literally ran them over with his elephants. And with his army, 60,000 strong army, he wiped them out. So thousands and thousands of people died. Hundreds of families were wiped out. Towns were razed to the ground. A lot of people died. A lot of lives were lost. A lot of people suffered. Alright? Not to mention the people that were in his own army eventually when that miracle does happen at the end, and Allah sends His army of the birds of the Ababi, alright, even thousands of people of His army died, who at at the end of the day were just sheep. They're very very cutthroat, oppressive ruler, who if they didn't show up for construction on time, would cut their hand off. He told them, come on, time to suit up, we're going out to battle. Saying no wasn't an option. So those people, many of them were wiped out. How did this man get to this point where he was solely responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of people? It took, another, it took someone who decided to disrespect his religion. It was someone who was immature, who was foolish, and in what, what he thought was an expression of his devotion or his dedication to his religion, to his beliefs, he decided to go and disrespect somebody else. He decided to go and violate somebody else's sacred place. Right or wrong, that's secondary. That's a secondary point. He decided to go and majorly disrespect somebody else, to disrespect somebody else's belief system, to go and violate. He could have disagreed all he wanted. He could have spoken out against it all he wanted, but he decided to go and do. To, to he decided to go and vandalize. He defecates and wipes his, you know. Um, excrement all over the walls, behaves like an animal. And that is what drives Abraham mad. And so you do learn a little bit of le- lesson from there. History is full of lessons. So you do learn a little bit of a lesson from there, that, you know, disagreeing is another matter. There is a right and a wrong. And disagreeing based on that, it's fine. And stating the truth is an obligation. But at the same time, there is a line that should not be crossed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about that line in the Qur'an. What does Allah say? و, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not curse, do not slander, do not curse, and do not disrespect their gods. Why? Why? Because then they will curse Allah. Do not disrespect, do not curse, do not say vile things. Asab Sibab. Right? Do not say vile things against their gods, their deities. Why? Because then they will say vile things against Allah, Adawan, out of animosity, out of retaliation. They're just retaliating, Adawan, Bihadi. Without proper knowledge, without proper understanding of what they're doing. They don't even realize what they're doing. They don't understand the implications of what they're doing. Yes, you were cursing certain things made out of stone or made out of wood. You were cursing idols. They are cursing the Lord of the worlds. Yes, agreed. But they don't understand really what they're doing. And at the end of the day, what is the end conclusion? They're still disrespecting Allah. And that's something we can't tolerate. And that's going to obviously lead to something else that's going to be very, very bad. Because when someone's going to disrespect Allah, disrespect the Messenger, disrespect the Prophet, disrespect the Qur'an, what, there's gonna be some Muslim some, somewhere along the way that's not gonna be able to maintain his cool. Somebody's gonna lash out, and next thing you know, blood is being shed on both sides. So this is even a Qur'anic injunction. And we see the Qur'anic injunction Being so relevant that even before the birth of the Prophet you have a major, major incident that is narrated to us in the Qur'an. Yes, it was the divine will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that it would happen. It was the decree of Allah that this would occur. But you can't help but notice, you can't help but learn from the fact that even a man set out to tear down and destroy the Kaaba, disrespect Allah. Why? Because somebody else went and disrespected his religion and his place of worship. So we learn a very, very profound, valuable lesson from that here. And inshallah, like I mentioned, we'll talk about the journey of Abraha with his army on the way to Mecca, on the way to the Kaaba. We'll talk about that next week. And that primarily will focus on that conversation between Abraha and the grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Abdul Muttalib, which will bring a lot of amazing things to light. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to practice everything was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallah wa bihamdik, nashad wa la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfirka wa